Welcome to the Audiences Podcast, the show that helps you discover new audiences and learn how to develop your own. I'm your host, Francesco Dorazio. I'm the founder and CEO of Pulsar, an audience intelligence platform for researchers, marketeers, and PR professionals. And I'm Sal Morton, producer of the Audiences Podcast and person in charge of keeping us all on track. So what's the podcast about, Fran? So every episode focuses on a cultural trend, an idea, a brand, or a new emerging behavior, and ask our expert guest three simple questions about it. Who's the audience of the thing? How has that audience evolved over the past few years? And where is it going next? In this episode, we spoke to Jenna Reck from Condé Nast. Now, how do you find that conversation? Oh, so, I mean... This is, I love this one. Uh, so me and Jenna met through AudienceCon. AudienceCon is this annual event we run um, about um, understanding audiences. And, um, and, and we met because that's what Jenna does and that's what I do. And she attended the event. Um, I was at the event and uh, we started talking. And then I thought like, hold on a second. You do this incredible job at Vogue. And Vogue is really interesting as an audience kind of like topic because Vogue has been the essence of cultural currency for the last 130 years. And so they've been doing that by understanding audiences and understanding how audiences evolve for the last 130 years. And their own currency is understanding audiences. So I thought, I got to speak to Jenna and understand how they do it and how things have changed. Obviously, she hasn't been involved in Vogue for 130 years, <laughs> but she has been deeply involved in uh, organizing the audience intelligence practice of Vogue. And so it's a very interesting conversation to understand how audience intelligence helps you stay relevant for that long. It really is so interesting to get into all the sub audiences of Vogue and the different kinds of people that it appeals to. Um, let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Today, we are exploring a very exciting one. We are exploring the audience of Vogue. Vogue is one of the oldest fashion magazines to ever exist. The magazine's debut issue was uh, published on December 17, 1892. That's about 130 years, which is a lot of time on any human scale, but particularly so in cultural geological time, if you like. Vogue's first issue features a debutante emerging from an ethereal cloud of butterflies and roses. A lot has changed since then. For example, at the time, we didn't, women couldn't cast a ballot and used to wear very voluminous leg of mutton sleeves. Uh, but the magazine has since dominated the fashion journalist industry for decades. It's what every fashion journalist dreams to work for, and it's what uh, any fashion lover wants to basically read. Uh, Vogue has managed to capture each of the eras they have gone through um, with their covers, featuring incredible photography by artists such as Irving Penn, Annie Leibovitz, Mario Testino, uh, Stephen Maisel, Richard Avedon, Herbreitz, and Bruce Weber. I mean, the list is endless. They've been capturing the supermodel era, the utility fashion era, and Vogue has been encapsulating that time, creating some of the most iconic covers to ever exist in the publishing industry. And as Anna Winter says, the best cover is always the next one, the one that you haven't seen yet. 
And the time has changed for the channels that Vogue has been using as well. So consider this in terms of their influence. At the latest Met Gala, over the seven-day period following the event, uh, the publisher generated 1.2 billion video views and 650 million social video views, which is 82% and 30% up year-on-year, respectively. So... How does that happen? How do you maintain such level of influence and uh, currency over 130 years? It doesn't happen by chance, for sure. So joining me today is new friend and fellow audience intelligence geek, Jen Arak, who is the Senior Director of Audience Development, Social Media and Analytics for Europe, APAC and LATAM at Vogue. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Fan. Thanks for having me. So welcome to audiences and, uh, and thanks for joining us. This is very exciting. So how, how are you today? Where are you? Great. I am at Vogue House in London, um, which sadly it's our last few months at Vogue House. Um, the iconic building is being sold. So we're moving to our other London office, but I am at Vogue House today. The other London office. Is it in the same part of town or in a completely different part of town? No, it's a little bit, a little bit further east. It's near the Strand. Uh, it's at the Adelphi. So we've had it for a while um, and we are grouping our two um, offices together and we're moving in together. So we're moving into the Adelphi in early 2024. It's exciting, but very sad. We'll miss this place. How long have you had that place? Like, has that been the, the original place in London for Vogue or has it, has it, has it been a new office, re- relatively new office compared to a new one you move into? I, I don't actually know the history of how long we've been here. We've had a few offices. I've been at Vogue, or I've been at Conde Nast for just over eight years now, and we've always had this building. It's got Vogue House written on the front of it in stone. It's a beautiful old building. I'm not sure how long we've had it, but I think it's been here for quite a while. I've seen videos from 30, 40 years ago from Christmas parties where we were still allowed to smoke in the offices and uh, there were clothing being thrown everywhere and they're, they're quite epic. Uh, photos and videos from the past. So I think we've been here for quite a while. I mean, the name was set in stone. So that says, exactly. that says a lot. Exactly. <laughs> that says enough about it. Exactly. <laughs> so um, you have a very interesting job title. Uh, and, it's quite uh, a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, but also quite like spot on for uh, the listeners of this podcast. Can you tell us a little, a little bit like how you got into audience development and um Yeah, what does the job entail? Yeah, of course. I think like many people, it was a roundabout path. There's no straightforward path for anyone in any sort of career these days. Um, To go way back, I was doing an undergraduate degree, um, a dual degree in biomedical and business. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, so I was in pre-med essentially or in pharmaceutical, something like that. Um, I was in a program. I'm Canadian, which is why I don't sound like I'm from the UK grew up in a small town in Ontario. And um, I was in a program at the University of Waterloo, which was, uh, you were on co-op every four months. So I was basically interning. So it was a five-year program where I was doing biomedical sciences, business, and then I was working for every four months. So I had several different roles. Um, one of those roles, the, the last role I had was at Facebook, where I ended up staying for, for longer than the period I was meant to be. Um, it was pre-IPO. Um, which gives you an idea about how long ago it was. And it was a really exciting time of like significant growth, really interesting, smart people working there. Um, 
I learned a huge amount. I worked for some really, really amazing people that challenged my views of traditional success and traditional paths and said, well, why do you have to do it that way? Like, is it, you just want to be a doctor because that is a, a very set in stone path. And I was kind of thrown and made me think about the world in different ways. Um, and so when I, I ended up going back to university, finishing my degree, when I was finishing my degree, I am an avid reader. I love books. I love publishing. And at that time, HuffPost was doing some pretty amazing things. Um, Ariana Huffington was the only woman who owned a publishing media house. Uh, it was very forward thinking in, in what the company was doing. It was user generated content there. It was like a forum, but also an actual publishing house as well. Anyway, I ended up emailing her, said, look, I've been working in tech. This is my background. I'm really excited about using my quantitative skills and applying it to something I love. Long story short, I ended up moving to New York City, working in at the Huffington Post um, for about a year. My partner, who's now my husband at the time, was doing his MBA in Paris and decided he didn't want to come back. Sorry, continue. What were you going to say? Sorry, just rewind for a second. You just emailed Ariane Huffington. I know it sounds ludicrous, but yes, I did. I was a very brash, uh, (laughs) (laughs) very optimistic young person who thought, well, I've done some pretty cool things. Like, why shouldn't I just reach out to the, the CEO of this company? And I didn't actually get a direct response from her. I just got forwarded on to an HR person who said, oh, hey, I want to talk to you about this opportunity. So, But it worked. It worked. It worked. Do you remember what a subject line was of that email? I don't. I should really go dig it out and, and print it out because I think that's what started my journey on in publishing. So I should I should really keep record of it, maybe frame it somewhere and put it in the in the house. Anyway, so she, someone go back to you. You started working on Halfball and... Uh, I worked at HuffPost. I did. Oh, that's true. I didn't. I wasn't clear about what I was doing. So I, I went in in a very similar role to what I was doing at Facebook, which is like growth. I can't even remember my title. My my memory is not so great anymore. Um, but it was essentially like a growth role where it was like, okay, can we try and find quantitative patterns or things that we can learn from the numbers and then apply it to different things? So applying it to various sales um, tactics, applying it to patterns in traffic and therefore could we get more traffic from a different place um it was quite a diverse role in what i had the opportunity to look at the numbers i i had visibility to and what i could actually go do with it really interesting role really loved it new york was fantastic for the sake of my relationship and and my partnership i ended up moving to paris for a couple of months with my with my partner and while he finished while he was doing his mba we decided we wanted to be in London. And so I started looking for roles in, in London and I got reached out to by someone on at Connie Nast um, and I ended up being hired by the head of digital for Connie Nast at the time, um, who now owns a publisher, now owns a podcast company as a fun fact. Sorry, was this another cold email? Was it not like, hey, no, they I actually reached this. out to me. They reached out to oh, me. Oh, they reached out to you. Okay. Yeah, they reached out to me. Um, and then, I, yeah, I started in early 2015 and I've been here for eight and a bit years now. So my role now, so my role, I've been in various iterations at this company. I've been here for eight and a half years, eight and a bit years. I came in as a growth hacker. And I think I told you this story before, friend, but I'll, I'll tell you again. My mother, when I told her that I'd gotten this role and my title was growth hacker, uh, my mother was quite upset about the idea of applying for a British visa <laughs> with the word hacker in my title. Um, but the British government approved it. Um, and then I started working here. And yeah, 
that's history. And so was your mom then clear on what the hiking job was? Like, how would she explain <laughs> yeah. that to her friends? She knew, she knew, yes. yeah. she knew I wasn't stealing money from people through black, black yeah. market. Yes, no, of course. And and you know what? It was a great opportunity. It was a really nimble, small team, the, the digital team then in 2015. Um, I came in in a role that I sounded different. I wasn't British. Um, I came from a background at Facebook and a couple of different other companies. Uh, I had a degree that really made no sense to anyone here. They're like, why did you study biomedical science and business? So it was a really great opportunity to just ask questions with no... Uh, backlash. I could ask questions. I could be curious. I could uh, just really get to know the business very quickly. And I wasn't threatening to anyone um, because I wasn't a journalist trying to take someone's journalist role. Because you're um, Canadian and, it was and Canadian exciting. people are nice. <laughs> I, well, that, that, that too. I think we've got that reputation and um, I, I try to uphold it. That is for sure. Um, so yeah, so I started in a growth hacker role I was looking at things like our Google Analytics tracking and were we tracking things correctly, looking at pathways of how someone comes from um, from the website all the way through to subscription and can we optimize that? Are there different things that we can change about that that workflow to, to improve it? Um, there was no such thing as audience development or audience growth. And as I was working with the teams, there was a realization that actually we need some numbers people working really hand in hand closely with each of the brands. Um, and so I was the for I guess I was moved into or I started a role, I think it was called like audience development for Connie Nas Britain. That started, we tried to do it centrally. So we were trying to sit. So in the UK at that time we had eight different brands. Um, and we tried so, to sorry, at that time, at that time, sorry to interrupt, the, the, was there already an audience development no. team or were no. you the first person to be audience development? I was the first person. Yeah. So I was a growth, yeah. growth person. And then through that, I did lots of different things to do with subs and marketing and commercial and, and editorial. And then at the time it was like, no, actually, you know what? We really need someone really focusing on editorial and working with editorial teams to be the quantitative person within. So I was the first audience development person. We hired a few people, tried to sit centrally and give uh, centralized support to the, each of the each of the teams, and then we very quickly realized that that just wouldn't work. Each brand was very different, and you ne you need needed someone embedded. So at that time, we then hired someone within each of the brands. Some of the brands had someone across a couple of them, but um, there was someone sitting in Vogue and someone in GQ and someone in Glamour and so on and so forth. Did that. Um, was very successful. Having someone in each of those brands worked really well. Um, I then took a, a two-year hiatus. And sorry, uh, yep. and what kind of what kind of support would these people give to the different to the different brands? Was it like uh, someone from the editorial team would ask uh, where the topic that they were going to cover was interesting for the audience of the magazine, or was it the audience person suggesting areas? To, for the editorial team to explore? What was the dynamic there? It's a combination of both. I think the best way to describe it is someone with quantitative skills and editorial journalistic skills to be able to work hand in hand with edit and commercial and product to help kind of connect the dots. And so some, it, some of it's reporting, looking backwards in order to be able to plan better looking forwards. So looking at what did well yesterday, last week, last month, 
how can we learn from it? So taking numbers and creating insights out of them. So actionable insights that we can say, okay, we should do more content about XYZ or this format worked really well or this channel is doing really well if we do ABC. Um, and so following, following those trends and following those patterns and then making suggestions and helping forward plan based on that information. Cool. Makes sense. From this role then, um, how did you then move into the next step for Vogue? So there was a little bit of a gap. So then I, for about two years, I went into Glamour magazine and worked with them for two years. We completely relaunched the brand. It used to be a very, very big, I think it was the number one women's publication in the UK. Uh, huge readership, but it started to go down downhill uh, of readership and advertising money. And so I got put in there as like a special project and we completely relaunched the brand, uh, new editor, entirely new team focused on a Gen Z uh, beauty first, but beauty in a much more holistic sense. So beauty as in external, but also internal, very health and wellness, um, people that, that were interested in skincare and it's kind of like how we, we talk about Vogue as being looking at the world through the lens of someone who loves fashion. Glamour was looking at the world through the lens of someone who loves beauty. Uh, really successful. It was our first digital first brand. So digital first rather than, than print first. Did that for two years um, and then stepped out of that. Came back into an audience development role where I was leading the team of each of the people within the British market. So at that point, we, we lost a brand. So we sold Brides Magazine. So we were down to seven titles. And I had someone in each of the brands um, who was reporting into me. So we used to be geographically centered. So I was head of audience development for our British titles. We then went through, a couple of years ago, we went through um, a big complete rehaul of the company and instead of being geographically centered so we had an md of the uk we had people like me and people like my colleagues that were heads of a department within the british business we had a british pnl we were very this was the uk business we then shifted and we're now brand focused so now i am vogue specific but instead of single market i'm a single market multi-brand i'm now single brand multi-market so now i'm across our nine owned and operated Vogue markets other than the US. So Mexico, Latin America, um, our European titles are the UK, Spain, France, Italy, and Germany. And then our APAC titles are India, Taiwan, and Japan. Okay, that's amazing. Um, that is an amazing range to cover. But um, just to go back to the switch from the um, territory to the brand-led structure um what what were the drivers for that decision uh was it like an understanding that the audience was the driving force rather than the rather than the team and the organizations that is bringing the publication to market what was the what was the thinking behind that shift i, I can't speak to it exactly I, I know the repercussions of it and i know how we actually implemented it i think that that was partially it i think part of it was profitability i think it, the reality is that we as the publishing industry get such a small percentage of display advertising because so much of it goes to meta and google that in order to be able to create creating to continue creating really great content it costs a lot of money. And so we just have to be realistic about what roles were there duplicates of, um, where could we strategize so that we are learning more from 
other markets in order to be able to scale quickly and learn from other people's good and bad things that they've done. Um, so part of it, I think, was financially, structurally, I think, for to be more business sound. And I think part of it was audience because actually, if you talk to people, they don't necessarily, I mean, the avid readers are very, very clear about um, the differences in Vogue markets. And they would get something very different from Vogue France than they would Vogue Germany than they would from Vogue Japan. And some people did follow and some people do follow several markets. Um, but the realization is we need more continuity and we want there to be differences and we love and, and we really support the differences in markets, but we also want there to be uh, the continuous thread between them because advertisers want that and readers and users, um, it's easier to understand, ah, that's Vogue. So the current audience um, development team that you manage effectively as, um, do you have a person for each market or do you have a team that looks after every single market? No, so I have I have a team in each of the markets where so I've got um, an audience development manager one or two, social media manager one or two in each of the markets, um, and then an analyst, a couple of analysts. Um, so no, they are they are all market specific. And so you have like some kind of like audience development pillars that every single team follows in the different markets, and then you have specificity at a lower level for each market. How it's quite fascinating how that's organized. If you can share anything about that. Yeah, I, th I think it's really hard to explain it because I think audience development, I think the best thing I can explain it is by saying that it's an art and a science. Yeah. It's not as easy as saying, oh, okay, this is a pillar we're going to just replicate across all the markets. Definitely. What works in, in the US will not necessarily work in Japan. Um, so it's not just a translation adaptation of a strategy and application. It's, it's empowering people that know their markets really well, who are experts in and are respected by their editorial teams. Um, and then having strategies, but also being incre incredibly malleable to adjust based on cultural nuance. Yeah. Um, so yes, there are pillars, but I think that's a little bit oversimplified for, for what yeah. it actually is. But I mean, I was more thinking about kind of like really high level uh, directions such as optimizing a funnel for subscriptions rather than optimizing a funnel uh, for yes, okay. exposure. Yes. You're totally like, right. do, you, do you go for like maximizing exposure or do you go for maximizing conversions for subscriptions? What's the, what is the single exactly. fruit that you guys follow there? Yeah. Okay, fine. So that, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And we do, we do talk about, so we've got KPIs, we've got two, two major KP, main KPIs, which are unique users and time spent. And those two metrics we talk about across all the markets regardless. And we will talk about optimizing the top of the funnel. How do you get more people through to the bottom? Um, things like channel diversification, making sure that we're getting a healthy split of people from all the different channels. Those are consistent themes that we're definitely trying to apply across each of the markets. This episode is sponsored by Pulsar. What is Pulsar? Pulsar uses AI to analyze live data from the web and the media to help you understand people at scale and with nuance. We're talking about social media like X, Instagram, Reddit, Pinterest, YouTube, as well as search data and any media from TV and radio to print news and podcasts. And of course, you can bring your own audience data like NPR or CRM to analyze alongside everything else. Brands like Amazon, agencies like McCann, media outlets like The Guardian and organizations like the UN use Pulsar to understand their audiences and create products and messages that matter to them. If you'd like to get a live signal from your audience, get in touch at pulsarplatform.com. 
So um, let's get into the audience of uh, Vogue. Let's go into the core of the episode. So um, obviously there's a lot of diversity in the different audiences that you guys are reaching across different markets. Is there like anything that um, do you have in mind? Obviously you do, but like, can you share anything about the the things that are that, that that this audience has in common across the different markets and the things that kind of like stand out in specific markets in terms of demographics or psychographics or certain segments that are like universal and other segments that are like specific to a market that don't exist anywhere else? Yeah, sure. Not surprisingly, uh, it's fashion lovers <laughs> globally. It's that that's who is following and, and caring about Vogue. Um, I, I will upfront say that there are huge amount there are huge teams working on on all these things there's the global research and insights team that's obviously looking at this from from a bird's eye view there are teams looking at print digital crossover there are teams looking at how do we like the marketing funnel specifically around these audiences and and profiling um what i can say is that from a digital perspective um we skew more female than male but we definitely have a male readership um, it's quite high household income. It's like in the UK, for example, I think it's over a hundred thousand, maybe it's one hundred twenty thousand pounds now. It's just quite high. Their spend on fashion and beauty is is quite significant compared to the average household um, in the UK. It's a younger audience, but realistically, it's in order to have affluence to buy, there is it does skew. So depending on, on what type of content you're looking at. On average, 25 to 54 is where our sweet spot is, and that's where the majority of our audiences are. Um, we're starting to get younger audiences in some of the markets where we're actually being a lot, much more intentional about certain channels and certain content types. Um, Runway is a great example. Runway is one of our sections where and, and an app that we have which skews higher for people in the industry, so creative directors, stylists, buyers, merchandisers, people that are actually in the industry wanting to see the most up-to-date images of what's happening around the world uh, from the fashion shows. Um, a little bit more B2B, general public B2C. We see really interesting trends um, where, for example, the shows are coming up in a few weeks, which is why we're all scrambling to get ready for September fashion month. It's no longer fashion week, it is fashion month fashion year, let's be honest. Um, but we will write content of trends coming out of the shows in September, October from the four main cities. People that love fashion are going to be consuming content before the season's actually taking place. So right now we are seeing content doing really, really well that we wrote a year ago because it was to do with the spring, summer and autumn, winter trends. Actually, it's spring, summer right now. It's still warm in, in London. But um, the spring, summer trends that we wrote about last season, those trends are the ones that people are consuming now and buying pieces from and, and looking at and taking inspiration for their for their wardrobes right now. So it's almost like the, the first movers in the fashion world, the first movers are reading the content at the time and then mass market are the ones that are consuming it when it's actually spring, summer and they are looking outside saying, oh, it's nice out. What should I be buying? What should I be wearing to be on trend? Um, that's definitely a pillar that we see globally as well. So that's quite interesting. So that how does Vogue capitalizes on that lag? Because obviously you put out that content like months and months ahead of when it actually gets consumed and it becomes 
relevant for the audience that is consuming that content. How does Vogue get involved at these at the consumption time rather than just at the moment when people read the content on a magazine? Like there is consumption at the time. I, I will. There are some people, there are fashion ad, uh, lovers that are going to consume the content mm-hmm. at the time. We, we capitalize by doing a couple of things. One is that we know that getting content out as soon as possible for search longevity mm-hmm. is a good thing. So if we're looking at trends for, for example, um, right now, silver trousers are very popular. Good to know. <laughs> Who would have known, right? So <laughs> go get yourself a pair. Silver, tra- silver trousers are very popular and like, oh, are they replacing jeans? That sort of thing for for this season. Are they? Um, we will write that. Are they actually replacing jeans <laughs> for this season? No, I will still right, wear jeans, okay. but but some of my colleagues will absolutely, yes. Um, so what we'll do is we'll write the, the article when it's coming out as a trend from the shows. Yeah. We will then make sure that it's optimized for search so that if people are looking up silver trousers in the time span after that it's written, they will find the Vogue article about silver trousers. However, when it starts to get then a little bit more popular, it gets maybe to season or it's getting closer to season, we'll update it and republish it. Um, we've got a commerce team that will either go in and, and add links to make sure that you are buying or make sure that you are seeing what is available to buy. Um, so making a shoppable for readers or we'll update it with maybe a new image of a celebrity wearing them or we'll make it relevant to the time and then we'll republish it um, and then social it because socialing it at the time, yes, we do it, but it just doesn't get nearly as much visibility and, and reach purely because the number of people that want to be talking about cashmere jumpers when it's 30 degrees out is not very high, but there are some people that do that. So when it gets closer to you, we'll, we'll then put it out. Got it. So basically, like aviation does the whole SEO piece, and then the cavalry gets in with an updated piece of content and the social side of it that kind of like uh, seeds it into the ground. That's 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 really interesting. That's uh, that's a that's, that's a great model. Um, so basically, the sooner you can get it out, the more you capitalize on that SEO piece and the. Uh, the more you're kind of like re-updating it would function because SEO would have done its job because you were first to market. Yes, yes, yes and no. Again, it's, it's always gray. It's not always, not always ex- as exact as that. But um, yes, or we'll write new content if there's something slightly different, which actually it's not yeah. just silver trousers. It's silver tra- trousers, high-waisted. I mean, that's such a terrible yeah. example. But you know what I mean? That if it's something actually different, then we'll write a new piece. Um, the other thing we also very much acknowledge is that we are not a huge broadsheet news publisher. So we will never be publishing yeah. 10,000 articles a day. So yes, speed's important, but we'd rather pause and take the time to think about, okay, what is the Vogue angle? What are our experts saying? What can we add to the to the conversation? And then write something. So sometimes we we trade that or we, we balance that off with, okay, we're not going to be the first movers, but we are going to be the people that give you the best article that we can mm-hmm. about that thing. Mm-hmm. And so and when it comes to when it comes to the dynamic of like choosing what to bet on, um, as you said, sometimes it comes from the editorial team, sometimes it comes from the kind of like research team and audience development team. Um, is there like an optimal workflow for making that decision? As in something is usually initiated by one or the other or does it just happen? Like, what's the structure in which this happens? Like, it sounds like it can happen in many different ways. But how do you maintain a consistency of output with all these different inputs? I think I've learned the hard way by putting structures in place or putting output 
limits in place or saying, okay, this has to be done this way. It just doesn't work because when you're in a creative industry, creativity can come from anywhere. Ideation comes from anywhere. Sometimes it's an intern who you've never heard speak before about beauty because she's in the fashion team. And actually she's got a great idea because her friends are talking about seed cycling and that's where the idea comes from. So I think it has to be fostering creativity from wherever rather than forcing a process. Um, however, I, I also give a huge amount of credit to the editorial teams and the editor. We've got brilliant heads of editorial content globally who do make sure that output remains. And, and we talk about it all the time where doing more content doesn't always equal more users. Sometimes being intentional about less content actually is better for, for audiences. Um, so it's a constant conversation it's a, and it's a healthy push and pull of keeping output to a certain level, knowing that we get average amounts of readers to each article, but also being intentional about pushing the boundaries on certain things. So a great example is you've got a, a group of content that you're going to create and refresh and do because you know it's really good, healthy content that you know people are going to come back to. Like people love looking at um, engagement rings, odd example, but people love looking at engagement rings. So if you're creating a consistent amount of engagement rings and wedding content, you know, is going to perform, you can allow yourself the risk of other articles, which might be huge hits, or they might not do anything. But as long as you're consistently creating the output of content that you know is going to be like the healthy evergreen um, cash cow, that it then uh -huh. allows you to be a little bit more um, adventurous with some of the other out outputs. Yeah. Yeah. And in all the different inputs that you mentioned for like understanding trends or understanding behaviors, the, the theme that keeps coming back is basically web analytics on the content that you guys are putting out. Um, and that's obviously extremely valuable, but there's a bunch of other ways of um, also getting a signal from the audience. What else do you, do you guys use? What's the toolbox uh, beyond web analytics? We're really lucky because we've got so much consumption data. So yes, web analytics, but but I think web analytics is also, there's so much you can get from that. You can get time spent, you can get dwell, you can get bounce rates, you can get page paths. So if someone comes in on this type of article and then they go to this, this, and this, is that a consistent theme that we can then see and replicate and, and learn something from? Um, for example, if someone comes in on a celebrity story, but then they go on to read a lot of fashion trends content, should we then be changing the product so that recirculation is suggesting other fashion trends content? Like there's so much that I don't want to gloss over just the web analytics because I think there's so much, we, especially because we've got, I mean, 10 markets essentially that we can share data between and say, well, look at this and look at this and we can find these patterns. Um, but that's not to say off-platform data is also hugely, hugely helpful. So any analytics from any of our social platforms, we've got multiple social platforms that we're across. Um, we get a huge amount of data, demographics data, click-through data, usage data from, from the social platforms themselves. Um, for example, a good kind of funny story about user behavior that you wouldn't necessarily think of is on Twitter, X, whatever you're calling it these days, um, there's a big difference between what people want to be seen as doing and what they're actually doing. So I might share an article of that Phoebe Philo's got her own eponymous brand coming out and I want to be seen as like a move, mover and shaker in knowing fashion 
and I want to be seen as sharing that article, but I might not read that article. Or what we see is we'll see a share, we'll see a like, but we won't see a read. But then something else like uh, Haley Bieber's milk blueberry nails are the color you need this season. I don't want to be seen as reading it, but I'm definitely going to read it. And so it's really interesting seeing even just the views versus click-through versus actual consumption rates, what what the patterns are in that. So yes, the social information, yes, the web analytics data, but then also the connection, the connectors and, and how are those related and, and what does it tell you about someone and what does it tell you about user patterns, um, which is which is so exciting. I think we're we're really lucky to have all these amazing data points that we can kind of pull together and, and create really, really, really interesting insights that we can then apply to the business. Which also really highlights the value of having a human in the in the loop. Because people, when you mention data, they seem to assume that a lot of these analysis and decisions are made in an sort of kind of like automatic way. But actually, it never works like that because without that context, you can't understand exactly. that idea of kind of like showing a kind of like persona rather than kind of like um, explicitly behaving in a certain way because that's who you are and what you want to behave as. Um, just to wrap things up, um, if you could think of um, a couple of key traits that you see in the audience of Vogue today, and what did that comp- what does that compare to the audience of Vogue maybe like 20, 30 years ago? If you have, is that like a, within the Vogue team, is there an idea of what the change in that audience of fashion is? Like, how has that audience changed from, say, the 80s or the 90s compared to today? Uh, or is it, has it mainly remained a constant type of kind of like persona that hasn't really radically transformed over time? I think it's changing so quickly. I think like so many things these days, uh, there's no such thing as being an expert in audiences. Like I, my job will be completely different in a year in terms of what I'm looking at, what I'm caring about. And it, the same goes for fashion. The same goes for all, all the different industries that are just the speed at which we're changing because of the internet because of accessibility. The one thing I would say is that I think we really did think that because of accessibility from the internet and just from transportation globally, people travel all over, there's a lot more homogenization, but there actually isn't in the sense that there is still an Italian identity and the Italian fashion lover does still really care about what matters to the public in Italy, which is different. So yes, we've got celebrities that cross borders and and are popular in various places. And you see trends that from the shows are then translated in and worn in a certain way in, in a country. But I think that's one of the really interesting things I've found is that we, some content does do well everywhere and some content will do really well in one country and that's it. And they're both valid and they're both interesting to see the influence that they have, um, they're just different. So I think it will continue changing. Yes, that we will continue being influenced by globalization, but I still think that there is a demographic identity that we're going to continue seeing. I think media consumption has changed a lot. I think where people are getting their content from, I think the tech platforms are trying to keep you on platform. They don't want you clicking away. So how people consume is changing in that sense. Um, a teenager is much more likely to go to TikTok and search something than they are to go to Google to search something. So making sure that we're there where our readers are um, is really, really important. Even just things like the desire for 
realness, I think, has been in, uh, influencing our content. Like before, I think we, I mean, nine years ago when I started, eight years ago when I started, we never responded to comments. Like it was like, no, we are Vogue. We're going to put out a piece of content and that's it. So if anyone commented on Instagram or Facebook or, or, or TikTok or something, we wouldn't say anything. And now it's part of our strategy, which if someone comments on a TikTok video, sometimes we'll create a piece of content based on the comment and then at the person and use that as a part of the actual video content. So it, it's, it, that has completely changed. People want to be a part of that. They want um, around the realness point. Some of our best content is like behind the scenes or arrivals at this show of these celebrities sitting down in the front row, less so than the perfect, beautiful, curated image or video or whatever it might be. So it has changed and I think it's continuing to change, but in a good way. Yeah, that I think is a really fascinating um, transformation. This whole idea of like showing the backstage rather than only what's exactly. on the stage is particularly challenging for uh, a brand and a publication that is all about, you know, perception, image and fashion. And so embracing it is particularly complex and and uh, and, 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 and adventurous for you guys uh, than it would be for, for anybody else. But, you know, even if you if you look at the way uh, certain CEOs, you know, not to name X, uh, conduct their business in public. <laughs> that's quite, that's quite interesting. You know, when there's even, when there's a kind of like the risk of a financial repercussion for any decision that you make and you publicly make and kind of like retreat from that decision um, within the space of, you know, 24 hours, that's kind of like terrifying, uh, fascinating, exciting, and, um, you know, interesting at the same time. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that, uh, to continuing on, on that trend where the backstage comes into the front stage and we start building ways of being authentic. I think so. Exactly. I think authenticity, I think humanity, I think people want to know who the people are. And so they want to know who the writer is, who's telling you about that you need to wear this because this is going to be on trend because they want to know, do I trust this person? Do I like this person's style? Do I, do I want to listen to them? So there's, there's even more of a platform. And, and I think there's more accountability for that reason, that there's more, this is who I am. This is what I'm giving you. And I'm going to be accountable for, for what I'm saying and doing. And, and I think that goes all the way up through to the CEOs, as you, as you said. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a job that no one was asking us to do. You know, this idea that you expect the audience to, that the, the, you think that the audience is expecting you to perform, but actually the audience always wanted as much authenticity as, as possible because that's what they connect with. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a really interesting time to redesign the way we uh, we do pretty much everything in business. Uh, but publishing and fashion is one of the key areas that... Um, is one of the key front lines for that um, for that evolution. And uh, with that one, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I wanted to thank you, Jenna, again for joining us and for your insight in the world of audience development and uh, publishing and uh, the audiences of fashion and Vogue. Um, I want to thank the audience for tuning in and learning all about the audience of Vogue. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. You've been listening to The Audiences Podcast, the podcast that helps you discover new audiences and learn how to develop your own. Me and the team would love to hear your feedback on the episode and on the podcast in general. Let us know which audiences we should explore next or anyone we should get on the show. Do reach out on our social media or email us at hi at audiences.podcast. As always, please rate, review and subscribe. Till next time.